Hey guys, tonight California Haunts Radio, I'm going to be reading from The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. Okay, give me a second here. <laughs> Gotta hit myself. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Uh, we're 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you think you have a paranormal problem, we can help. Uh, it might take us a couple days to get to you. California is a big state. And uh, that's what a lot of people realize is we've got it. We got it all. We got ocean. We got mountains. We got uh, low bed, low desert, high deserts. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of rural areas. That's why it might take us a couple of days, but only a couple of days. And in the case that it does take a couple of days, we do have psychics on staff who can help you. They'll call you, and if it is paranormal, in most cases they can settle all the activity down until we get out there. Welcome, and uh, tonight's kind of a different night. Uh, we had a last-minute guest cancellation, so uh, instead, of, you know, just instead of trying to book somebody this late in the week, especially around Thanksgiving because everybody's busy, I decided to add an extra reading day onto uh, the uh, Lizzie Borden book because uh, I was I was going to switch Sunday completely over to the holiday book, but uh, why just want to do this? I wasn't even I thought about doing a pre-recorded show today too, but uh, I decided against that too, so. Because I like reading to you guys. I, I like being live. For those of you watching from TikTok, I see you coming in the room. Welcome. I'll be reading for an hour or an hour thereabouts from the, the History and Hauntings of Lizzie Borden. The History and Hauntings of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca Pittman. It's hard to read here, you know. Uh, and it's a really good book so far. Uh, to get everybody caught up on this. Uh, as of Sunday, we had uh, read about her murdering her, her stepmother. So today, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty about her murdering her father. That being said, the book is graphic. Rebecca F. Pittman does go into a lot of detail in this book, whether it's trials or other stuff. So I want to warn you guys ahead of time, this channel is PG-13, bordering on R. So if you feel uncomfortable by what I'm reading, don't turn me in, you know, to block me or have me banned because I mean that's not cool. I'm just reading from a book, okay? Uh, but but you know there's other places you could go. Lackawanna at Disneyland, you could check that out. Other uh, political discussions, it's TikTok, right? So you can go wherever you need to go. That goes for Facebook and YouTube as well. I'm broadcasting tonight live on TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitch, and Instagram. So I'm going out everywhere tonight. So I just want to let you guys know. Also. I have old eyes, so I cannot see the little tiny writing. If you guys are sending me messages, I cannot read your messages. I do see you there, however. There is a live goal set up. Um, nobody's required to give me gifts or anything like that. But if you like what you hear, 
If you can help me out, that'd be great. I'm just trying to make enough cash to keep my show on the air. Okay, we've been on the air four hours, uh, four, four, four years. It's one of those days. And I want to keep it that way. So, and, and I can only do that if, if I get support from my listeners. All right. And if you're at home and you're cooking and you're doing whatever for Thanksgiving, please be sure to uh, put us on, turn the show on in your kitchen where you're cooking so you can listen tonight. And maybe share me. If there's anybody else in the house that you think might be interested in hearing this story, be sure to uh, hit that share button because I really like, you know, a, a lot more people listening to me. I really appreciate it. Also, uh, if you haven't done so already on it, YouTube, uh, hit that subscribe button because we're looking for a thousand subscribers by the end of uh, by the beginning of January, rather. And Facebook, if you haven't done so already, be sure to hit that follow button on Facebook because, like I said, I'm always looking for followers. I really appreciate it. And if you can find it in your heart, you like what you hear, and this goes for TikTok as well. Show me some love. Show me some hearts, some happy faces, smiley faces. You know, thumbs up and all that good stuff. Because, you know, I want to know what you guys like. And if you appreciate me doing this, that'd be great. Also, I'm looking for a goal this evening of 4,000 likes on TikTok. So if you could double tap that screen, please help me out to get as close as I can to that 4,000 likes on TikTok. And, you know, with TikTok, we're expand I'm always expanding. And we're going to be doing a lot of different things on TikTok coming up here. So uh, just to let you know, it's just not going to be reading a silly book, okay? It'll be other stuff as well. Okay. That being said... YouTube, do the same thing. Comments, likes, all that good stuff. Puts us up higher on the FYP and spreads us out more. Okay, so without further ado, let me uh, turn this here real quick. And let me get my tablet, and I'm going to read to you from The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. So again, when we left off last week uh, on Sunday, Lizzie had just just murdered her uh, mother-in-law. Her, her, so stepmother? I say mother-in-law, but stepmother. And, uh, yeah, so she's, and she hasn't decided if she's going to murder her father yet. So we're getting to that point because he hasn't come home yet from the bank, okay? And the, and the premise that uh, Rebecca writes about with this book is that it, it was over land that Lizzie felt that she and her sister were due to inherit, and he was going to sign it all off, I believe, to his wife. And that upset her to the point that she killed, you know? And leading up to this, they'd been sick. Because Lizzie had put poison in their milk. So leading up to this, the first few days, you know, leading up to the death, they had had, you know, uh, poison and they were throwing up all over the place and stuff. So, so let me pull this up. Again, welcome everybody. I'm really excited to see you all on, on TikTok and everywhere else. I really appreciate it. I know it's, for a lot of people, it's the night before Thanksgiving. And for the people that it's not the night before Thanksgiving, I appreciate you being here. But again, if you do find something offensive of what I'm talking about, if you do find something offensive, please feel free to move on. Do not turn me into the to Facebook, YouTube, or whatever police, even TikTok police. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not fair. Okay, because I'm just reading a book. All right. Okay. Okay. This is where I left off. Here we go. Okay. So again. She hasn't killed her father yet, so, so we are building up to that. So this is where we start. She would need to get rid of the hatchet. It must look like the murderer lost it during his escape. The hatchet could not be traced back to her. It was new and had been purchased from a man with no ties to her. Knowing Alfred, the Swede from the farm, would detect the hatchet missing from the cellar. 
buying a new one had been her only choice. Lizzie, let me make sure I got my audio up real quick, guys. Hang on. I'm just trying to get this going. Make sure we got you guys going here. Okay. All right, we're back. Okay, here we go. Lizzie had selected the perfect place to put the hatchet, one in plain view, and yet where it might be picked up and carried away. She looked out her window toward the southeast. She could see the foreign-looking man sawing wood just on the other side of her fence in Crow's yard. She could also see the wood pile where a hatchet would not look out of place. Whether the police found it and connected it to an escaping murderer or to a woodsman happened, or, or a woodsman happened upon it and happily took a brand-new hatchet home with him. Her purpose would be to have been served. It was away from her. She glanced down at the side of the yard. Bridget had moved to the other side of the house. Thurs Chapter 13, Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Timing. At 9.45 Thursday morning, while Lizzie was cleaning Abby's blood from her blood, body and dress, Joseph Chatterton arrived at the Borden house to pick up Andrew Borden's wife and deliver her to the National Union Bank on North Main Street. He was early in case she was waiting out front. He parked his buggy down a ways between the Borden and Kelly houses. The day was hot and muggy. He eyed the shade of one of the two large oak trees standing like sentinels before the Borden house. After several minutes, he got out of the buggy and planted himself beneath the north tree, nearer to Mrs. Churchill's home. The sidewalk was busy, so he stepped up onto the stoop of the north gate of the Borden property and leaned his arm against the fence post. Mrs. Delilah Manley and her friend, Mrs. Hart, were walking along 2nd Street at 9.45 a.m. They stopped to look at a cart with pond lilies for sale, standing between Mrs. Churchill's house and the Bordens. As Mrs. Manley stepped back onto the sidewalk, she came face to face with a young man standing on the stoop of the north gate of the Borden house. She described him during trial testimony as young, about 30, wearing light gray clothes. He was standing in the north gateway, leaning his arm on the gatepost. The gatepost is higher than this, pointing to a photograph of the Borden house, and that is the one he was resting on. He seemed to be looking at us, taking in what we were talking about. I should judge. If Mrs. Manley had looked up at the house, she might have seen Lizzie Borden looking down at them only moments after washing Abby's blood from her hands. Parentheses. During the preliminary hearing, Officer Molly was asked by Lizzie's attorney, Mr. Adams, when Miss Lizzie said something about seeing a man around here that morning, did she say that she saw a man under the tree or something like that by the back fence, the front fence? Mullally, I do not remember just what she did say. Adams, you would not say. She did not say in substance something like that? Mullally, no, sir, I could not. Officer Mullally's witness statement, a statement that was required and turned in by every officer involved in the Borden murder case, is mysteriously missing. We hear of Lizzie seeing a man under a tree by the front fence only in the preliminary hearing. In parentheses. Dr. Handy's wild-eyed man. Lizzie stepped into the guest room and took one last look at Abby's prone body. She had not moved. She would not move again. The metallic smell of blood was dissipating as the pool beneath her head soaked into the carpet. Cro crossing to the washstand, Lizzie checked that all was in order. She picked up the hatchet and the pail of bloody towels. Glancing back at the room, she walked out, leaving the door open. 
She looked into her room. It was too in order. She suddenly thought of the four-foot-long pipe lying beneath her bed. She would no longer need to eavesdrop on her stepmother and father's conversations through her secret hole in the fireplace. A metal plumber's pipe could be misconstrued in, into a weapon with which to beat someone over the head. She grabbed it. The sun beat down on Bridget Sullivan as she continued washing the windows. It was 10 a.m., and her dress stuck to her, perspiration matting her thick hair to the back of her neck. Mary Doolin, the Kelly's maid, was also going about washing the windows. It was Thursday. Maids all throughout Fall River were on ladders or struggling with long poles, brushes, and pails. Lizzie knew Bridget's window washing schedule by heart. She always started with the sitting room windows on the south side, moving around to the west to the parlor windows near the front door, and finally the one parlor window and two dining room windows on the north, across from Mrs. Churchill's. She would wash them first with the brush, and then go around again in the same order, throwing water up on them with the dipper. Parentheses, George Petty said he saw Bridget washing windows at 10 a.m. Mrs. Churchill stated she saw Bridget throwing water on the parlor window with a dipper that morning. The parlor window closest to my house, north side, between 10 and 10.30 a.m. Bridget stood on the ground, reaching up with long pole, washing the parlor window next to the front door. The front of her dress was wet, from wash water and sweat. She did not notice the young man who had, only moments before, been leaning on the board and gatepost, become nervous of her presence and walk across the street. Joseph Chatterton watched the front door of the board expectantly. The city hall clock had struck 10 o'clock only moments before. His shirt was damp in the heat and humidity. He watched the maid across from him pick up her pail, a long pole pressed beneath her armpit, and circle around to the north side of the house. Lizzie Bourne watched Bridget's movements as well from the cellar. She could see the maid's feet through the small cellar windows as she moved from window to window and went to the barn for fresh water. She was almost finished with the first part of the work. It would take her only 15 to 20 minutes to finish up the rinsing with the dipper. Lizzie filled the cellar sink with cold water. She grabbed Bridget's bar of lye soap and scrubbed the new hatchet along its edges. The gold gilt emblem from the manufacturer remained intact at the hatchet center. The place beneath the blade, where it met the handle, was the hardest part. Some of the blood had seeped up under the opening. The handle had cleaned up nicely, as it was, new, as it was made of new, new hickory wood, and deep crevices had not, formed, had not yet formed. She took one of Bridget's small scrubbing tools and worked on the stubborn stain. It would not need to be perfect. An escaping murder would not be expected to have a pristine weapon. Outside the Borden house, as Bridget came back around to, to the Kelly house side of the building to begin rinsing the windows, Dr. Benjamin Hattie was passing up 2nd Street, taking particular notice of the Borden house. His daughter, Louise, may have told him of a strange letter Elizabeth Johnson had received from Lizzie in the morning mail. Elizabeth Johnson was at the Handy Cottage at Marion, with the other girls vacationing there. They were expecting Lizzie on Monday morning. But the letter Elizabeth received from her friend was so frightening, she showed it to the other girls. Strange tales of poisonings, enemies, and a man running about the boarding house in the shadows. Louise may have asked her father to drive by the boarders to see if he saw anything out of the ordinary. Any strange men running about the house. The letter also mentioned a hatchet. Dr. Handy was questioned extensively by Attorney Knowlton about what he saw on 2nd Street that morning. Knowlton. 
Were you in the vicinity of the house during the, the forenoon at any time? Andy. I passed it twice. Once in the morning about nine, and returning about somewhere between 20 minutes past 10 and 20 minutes of 11. I was in a carriage. Knowlton. Did you see any person in the vicinity of the boarding house at this time? Handy. I did. He was opposite the space between Dr. Kelly's house and Mr. Wade's store. He was a stranger. I noticed he was very pale, exceedingly pale individual, as he was passing very slowly up the street, going south. He was just beyond Dr. Kelly's house, south, opposite the space between that and the store. He was a young man of medium height, dressed in a light suit of clothes, sort of grayish. There was something about him that attracted my attention, so I turned and looked at him the second time as I went by him. Knowlton, did you ever see the man before? Handy. My opinion is that I had seen him before, within a few days on 2nd Street. I had the impression that he had a mustache. He was a small man, 5 feet 4, 5 feet 3 or 4. Knowlton, short, was he? Handy. Yes, sir. He had a very full and very white forehead. Full face. I spoke to my wife and to the officers that are stationed at the patrol station nearly opposite my house. Knowlton, what time in the morning did you say it was? Handy, somewhere between 20 minutes past 10 and 20 minutes of 11. In that 20 minutes. Knowlton, which way was he going? Handy, he was facing south. He did not always face the south. He turned partially around several times while I was going by. That is moving. He had on an ordinary sack coat. He was alone and looked agitated. Knowlton, you understand quite active efforts have been made by the police to find such a man? And they have followed down every rumor? Handy, yes, sir. Here's a redirect by Mr. Jennings, Lizzie's attorney. Oh, it's like I'm fading away, guys. Okay, here we go. Make sure, okay. Jennings, what did he appear to be doing when he turned around? Handy, he did not turn clear around. He seemed to be moving, or facilitating, or oscillating on the sidewalk, looking down on the sidewalk. Parentheses. Both the Chatterton brothers, James and Joseph, are described as pale complexioned. The witnesses who saw James in his baseball shoes on Monday described him as having a sallow complexion, a synonym for pale. James is described as 5'9", and Joseph as a small man of 5'3 or 5'4". Dr. Hattie says he feels he has seen the young man before a few days earlier. Perhaps Handy saw him as Joseph waited in the buggy at the boards for James on Monday. Mrs. Manley describes the young man waiting out in front of the boarding house, leaning on the gatepost, as about 30. Joseph Chatterton was 31 years old. Both brothers worked inside making shoes. That may contribute to pale complexions, or it may be a family trait, such as redheads inherited. In the parentheses. <laughs> Is it me or does this thing keep moving? You know, it's, it's just weird. Okay. This is just really kind of, it's kind of creepy. Okay. The way it's, there we go. Now, if I end up over on the side again, that's going to be just double creepy. All right. If Double tap that screen. Double tap that screen. TikTok. I'm going for 4,000 likes tonight. See if we can do this. Double tap that screen. Lizzie walked carefully up the cellar steps to the kitchen. She wasn't sure if Bridget might come into the house again. She had heard her several minutes ago getting the dipper from the sink, the screen door slamming behind her as she went back out. Watching the open door, Lizzie grabbed Bridget's salt felt hat from the pegs lining the back entry. She picked up the hatchet and placed it sideways inside the hat. 
Carefully, she rubbed the felt along the handle and blade. She had read that a new kind of forensic technology was now being used by police. It was called fingerprinting. She wasn't sure if Fall River had it yet, but she heard Boston might be using it. Lizzie peeked through the screen door. No Bridget. She should be at the front of the house, Lizzie thought. She hurriedly picked up the plumber's pipe hat and hatchet and ran out the side door to the backyard. She dropped the pipe in the tall grass and hurried for the lumber pile at the back of the property. Her heart pounding. The noises of the neighborhood caused her nerves to fray with each sound. Looking about her constantly, she climbed up onto a few boards and reached up for a pair. Just an innocent outing in the morning hour should anyone be watching her. The felt hat, still gripping the hatchet, was in her left hand, away from the house. The pair of brushes poked her as she adjusted herself on the boards, the wood making a scraping sound against the rough timbers of the fence. Lizzie took one last look toward the street and back again at the side, at the side jog by the barn, and then flung the hatchet from the hat over the fence. Her sleeve just missed becoming snagged on the barbed wire with which her father had lined the top of it. A large bang sounded. She had missed her mark. Underestimating how far a top-heavy hatchet would fly, she heard it land on the metal roof of Crow's barn, farther back from the woodpile she had, than she had hoped for. The large clang of Mason's bell hitting stone had covered the noise. She thought she heard the hatchet slide down the metal roof, but she wasn't sure. The sound of sawing continued uninterrupted. The forward-looking man on the other side of the fence had noticed nothing. Lizzie climbed down from the woodpile. Once again, she scouted the yard and street and peered up at the curtain windows of her neighbor's houses. It didn't appear as if she had been seen. She dropped the pair into the grass. A young Russian immigrant, Hyman Lubinsky, was driving his ice cream cart north on 2nd Street, coming from Charlie Gardner's stable on 2nd Street in Rodman. He saw the pretty Irish maid up ahead, closing the tall shutters to the windows near the front door. She looked as though she was in a hurry. He had sold ice cream to her in the past couple of weeks. Perhaps he would come back after he picked up his merchandise. Lubinsky was asked about what he saw that day. His original report to the police was that he passed the boarding house at 10.30 that morning. His timeline had changed by the Superior Court trial. One year later, the rest of his story had not. Mr. Jennings, Lizzie's attorney. When you got to the boarding house, did you see anyone on the premises? Lubinsky. Yes, sir. I saw a lady come out of the way from the barn right to the stairs back of the house, the north side stairs from the back of the house. She walked slow. Jennings. Can you tell how she was dressed? Lubinsky. She had on a dark colored dress. Jennings. Did she have anything on her head? Lubinsky. No, sir. Jennings, she was going towards the steps. Did you see her go into the house? Lubinsky, I don't know. I couldn't tell this. Jennings, had you ever seen the server or the servant who worked in that house? Lubinsky, yes, sir. Jennings, have you had you ever delivered ice cream to her? Lubinsky, whoa, hang on a second. It just jumped on me. Okay. Okay, here we go. Lubinsky. Hang on a second. What just jumped on me here? Yeah. Okay, have you, have you ever delivered ice cream to her? Yes, sir. Two or three weeks before the murder. Jennings. Was the woman you saw the servant? Lubinsky. I saw the servant and the woman, too. 
Was the woman you saw the day of the murder the same woman as the servant? Lubinsky, no, sir. Jennings, are you sure about that? Lubinsky, I'm sure about that. Quickly, fearing Bridget would head to the bar at any moment, Lizzie grabbed the pipe from the grass and ran to the open barn door. She lobbed the plumbing pipe at the box near the door where other metal pieces were kept. Her aim was off. The pipe hit the side of, a, of the box and rolled out onto the barn floor. She had no time to retrieve it. What did it matter anyway if it was seen there, she thought. Lizzie walked slowly, slowly to the side of the house where the back stairs were and stepped around the corner, looking for Bridget. She did not see her. What she did see was a young foreigner in a cart looking right at her. Parentheses. Officer Midley reported seeing a piece of lead pipe about four or five feet long laying on the ground floor of the barn. Distance, distance from, about, from the door about five feet. This was in full view and could readily be seen by anyone. I saw it on the afternoon of August 4th. End of parentheses. Bridget Sullivan closed the dark drab parlor blinds and headed around the corner of the house toward the barn. Just missing the screen door as it closed, silently behind Lizzie. The servant emptied the dirty water into the yard and returned the long pole to the horse stall in the barn, stepping over a piece of pipe on the floor. Her head was throbbing and her stomach still felt queasy. She entered the side door of the kitchen and lashed it behind her. Then sudden darkness of the black of the back entry okay, sorry, the sudden darkness of the back entry felt like an oasis after being in the unrelenting sunshine. Her flesh pebbled at the change of temperature as she trudged down to the cellar to return the pail, dropping it at the base of the stairs. Bridget walked back up the cellar stairs and placed the brush back in the closet by the stove. She took out two small wash rags, hand basin, and a small stepladder. Crossing to the sink, she filled the basin with water and walked to the sitting room. She removed the screen of the window closest to the front door, climbed her small ladder, and began to wipe the dirty glass. Lizzie sat on the lounge in her room, her head spinning. Had she covered her tracks? The hatchet was away from the house. She had almost forgotten and returned Bridget's hat to its peg after she laid it on the kitchen table and headed for her room. Only after she was only after she was halfway up the front stairs did she remember she had left it there. She placed it back on the peg, making sure its shape was the same as when she borrowed it. Wearing two dresses was taking a toll on her, but she could hear Bridget raising and lowering the window in the sitting room. She would be finished in about 15 minutes. She had only the two sitting room windows to do, and two in the dining room. She was not in charge of the parlor and only rarely cleaned the kitchen windows, as they did not show for company. She could handle wearing the double layer of clothing for a little while longer. She only hoped the girl hurried with her work before her father returned. Looking at a reflection in the dressing table mirror, Lizzie smoothed her hair. She backed up and twirled slowly around. You could not see the hemline in the bed for cord she wore beneath the calico. She leaned close to the mirror, checking for any blood she may have missed. Her large cat-like eyes looked suddenly forward to her. There was a dullness to them, as if the light had gone out. They looked puffy from lack of sleep. Straightening, she double-checked that the hooks on the front of her blouse waist were holding firm against the extra bulk. Her hands looked clean. She, she, she breathed a little easier. Remembering the hatchet, she stepped to the window closest to the backyard and peered out. 
While she could see the top of the woodpile and the man sawing wood, the pear trees blocked her view of the roof of Crow's barn. She wanted desperately to see where the hatchet had landed, but she didn't dare go and look. Picking up her purse, Lizzie stepped into the guest room, unable to stop herself from taking one more look at her handiwork. Standing at the bottom of the bed, she looked down at the rotund woman she had grown to hate. It was all so surreal. She had to keep reminding herself that Abby Bourne was dead. In a few more minutes, she and Bridget would be headed downtown, checking sails and running errands, something the two of them had never done before. In only a few more minutes, she would be in the, cl she would be in the clear. Just then, someone began rattling the front doorknob. Bridget, not expecting Mr. Bourne yet, walked into the parlor and peeked through the crack of the parlor blind of the front door stoop. To the left, it was Mr. Borden, home early. He was fumbling with the lock. Bridget hurried to the front door to let him in. Lizzie heard the commotion and stepped onto the landing to listen. There was a rattling at the front door as if someone was trying to get in. Her breath caught. She stepped quietly down two steps into the curve of the staircase where she had a clear view of the front door. She saw Bridget's back turning the spring lock. The maid turned to head back to the sitting room only to hear the door rattle again. She returned, sighed deeply, and struggled to slide back the top bolt. Finally, she unlocked the last latch and swore. The profanity Bridget used, so strange and so indicative of the moment, took Lizzie by surprise. Her nerves screaming and her plan of escape shattered, she looked at Andrew Borden striding into the front entry and turned to see Abby Borden's body beneath the bed. Through the stairwell spindles, she was trapped. She was, in essence, the word Bridget just used. Lizzie laughed. Chapter 14, Thursday, August 4th, 1892, The Hands of Fate. If you like what you're hearing, show me some love, thumbs up, hearts, uh, TikTok, that, double tap that screen, double tap that screen. I'm trying to build up to uh, 4,000 likes tonight. Just trying to get myself known on TikTok, so if you can help me out with my likes, I'd appreciate it. John Morse sat in the sitting room of Emory's at number four, Roy Boss's Street. A very pale and agitated John Chatterton was sitting across from him, hunched over in the chair and practically running his, ruining his soft hat as he twisted it in his hands. His brother James was seated in an armchair next to him, looking none too pleased. Mrs. Emory was in and out of the room, catching snippets of the conversation. Her niece was in the kitchen, working on a cup of chamois tea after being ill most of the morning. The mantel clock in the sitting room chimed 10.45. John Morris was clearly upset. He pressed Joseph to tell him again what happened. The young man sputtered out that he was there earlier to the Borden house to pick up Mrs. Borden. He swore he was out front in the buggy at 9.45. He, he got hot and went and stood under the tree by the gate, but couldn't see the front door plainly. He waited in that spot until some ladies looking at the peddler's cart took notice of him, and the maid came around the corner of the boarding house to clean the windows near the front door. He didn't want to look like he was just hanging around, as the plan was to, was to be secretive about the whole thing. So he walked across the street and kept an eye on the door for Mrs. Borden to come out. It was hot. He had no shade there, and he heard the city hall clock strike ten. He figured she would come down. That was the appointed time, but she didn't come out. 
He watched the maid move around to the side of the house where she had just been, where he had just been standing, lugging a wooden bucket. He watched her mop her forehead and push her bangs away. She didn't look like she, she felt really well. The minutes ticked by. He heard the big clock chime the quarter hour. It was 10.15. He had been told not to knock, just wait for her to come out. He couldn't just stand there staring at the house. He began moving slowly south on the sidewalk, only to turn back and look again at the door. Back and forth he paced. His suit felt like an oven of fabric. He worried people were going to notice his strange actions. There were men and women everywhere, loitering out in front of the store, across from him, talking to each other on the sidewalk, going in and out of the laundry just steps away from him. Time dragged on. The clock struck 10.30. He gave up. He would go back to the Emery's and see what to do. Something must have happened. He got into his buggy, took one last look toward the door with number 92 next to it, and flicked the reins. He headed down Second Street, glancing back to see the maid closing up the large shutters of one of the two of one of the two windows by the front door. He caught a glimpse of a young foreigner directly behind him, driving an ice cream peddler's cart. As Joseph told his story to his cousin John Morse, he could see how angry and nervous the older man was. Andrew Borden had already wrung the Emery's twice, asking where Abby was. The deal had to be done today. Emma Borden was staring out the window of the Brownells' parlor, not seeing anything in her worried state. Her stomach was clenched in panic. When Lizzie was in one of her moods, it could be frightening. It was like a runaway train of emotion, and anyone in her path was in danger of being pressed into the rails. She could change so quickly. One minute, that unnerving calm, looking at you as though you were a bug beneath glass. The next, her face would color. Those same eyes flashed with a hate that withered, and she would act out without thinking. There were no breaks. The family had learned to run for cover, or just give in to her demands. The letter from Lizzie, Emma was clutching in her hand, worried her. She feared something terrible was about to happen. At 92 Second Street, Bridget finally managed to undo the three locks securing the front door and swung it open. A disgruntled Andrew Borden pressed in past her. Without a word, she noticed he was carrying a small white parcel. He swept his top hat from his head and planted it impatiently on the peg of the hall tree. Bridget shut the front door and returned to the sitting room to complete her window washing, leaving Andrew to rebolt the door. Seeing Bridget's cleaning in the sitting room, Andrew walked into the dining room instead. No, Abby. She didn't appear to be in any of the downstairs rooms. She must have gone out. Somehow, they had missed each other. Perhaps John's cousin had gotten lost or gone to the wrong house. When he talked to John by phone only ten minutes earlier, he was told the young Chatterton cousin had not come back to had not come back to the Emery's. So he must be with Abby downtown. She would realize they missed each other and return at any, any moment. There was still time. Andrew's head throbbed. He dropped the lock, still wrapped in the sleeve of the, of the Providence Journal, into his Prince Albert coat pocket. He would add it to the other locks in, in the box in the, in the bar later. He reached into the inside pocket of the coat and removed the folded deed for the Swansea farm. It was several pages thick, resembling a small book. And laid it on the dining room table. 
removing the coat. He laid it across the arm and lounge chair that sat along the south wall of the dining room. Abby, or the girls, would sometimes lay there when the summer heat was too much to be upstairs in the daytime. He preferred the sofa in the sitting room. He picked up the deed and carried it to the dining room window where the light was better. Looking out through the glass Bridget had just washed outside, he noticed someone moving about in the Churchill's kitchen. Paying no attention, he opened the deed and checked over a few of the conditions he had added there. Bridget walked into the kitchen. She was surprised to see Lizzie coming down the back stairs. Bridget had just heard the girl laugh at the top of the front stairs not five or ten minutes ago. Knowing the door separating Lizzie's and her parents' room was always locked, Bridget was confused as to how she came down. As Lizzie came tiptoeing quickly down the back stairs, she looked a little startled to find the maid in the kitchen, having assumed Bridget was in the sitting room. She hesitated for a split second near the back door. Bridget paused only a moment. Scenarios ran through her mind of how Lizzie accomplished this feat of presagination, but then continued on to the sitting room, anxious to be finished with her work. She climbed the small stepladder and ran the wet cloth over the top window pane. She thought she heard the sound of a small clink behind her, and turned to see Lizzie near the sitting room mantel. Keeping her face in mask, the girl walked through the room, ignoring Bridget, and turned right into the dining room. Andrew was seated in his chair at the dining room table. He quickly put away the deed and stood up as Lizzie entered the room. Bridget heard Lizzie's voice, speaking low and very slowly. Is there any mail for me? Bridget heard Lizzie ask her father. Mr. Bourne answered, but his voice was too low for Bridget to hear his reply. She next heard Lizzie tell him that Abby had a note from a sick friend and had gone out. There was no reply from Andrew. Bridget climbed down from the stepladder and began washing the bottom half of the window, which, which was behind the rocking chair. She saw Andrew come from the dining room into the kitchen and from the kitchen into the sitting room, picking up the key from the mantel to his bedroom. This was the first chance Bridget got a good look at him. His complexion was pasty, and his usual erect stature had given way to unseen weight. He looked sickly, tired, and stressed. Andrew walked through the kitchen, heading for the back stairs. Bridget finished the window and adjusted the two screens, pulling the chairs back into place where she had moved them to accommodate her ladder. She took the basin into the dining room and set it on the table. Lizzie was nowhere to be seen. Just as Bridget picked up her ladder from the sitting room and headed into the dining room, Andrew came back downstairs. He looked fidgety and distracted. As she placed as she placed her ladder before the window on the northwest side of the room, she looked back to the open dining room door and saw Andrew open the window in the sitting room nearest the front hall and sit down in the armchair there. He once again had a small book or papers in his hands and was looking it over. Bridget went for clean water in the kitchen. As she was coming back to the dining room, she passed the open cellar door. It sounded like someone was down there rummaging around. It could only be Lizzie, she thought, as Mrs. Mrs. Borden is out, and Mr. Borden is in the sitting room. What can that girl be doing? Bridget moved her ladder to the last window in the dining room 
She could no longer see Mr. Borden due to the wall behind her. Lizzie suddenly came into the, in from the sitting room and walked to the dining room, opened the door to the kitchen, went through, and shut it. There was no sound coming from the sitting room. She had cleared no conversation pass between, or she had heard no conversation pass between Lizzie and her father as the girl came through a few seconds before. The kitchen door opened, and Lizzie entered the dining room, carrying a small ironing board and some handkerchiefs. She went back to the kitchen and returned with a flat iron. Bridget hadn't heard her add fuel to the small coal fire in the stove. She glanced over and saw a roll of sprinkled handkerchiefs on the dining room table. Lizzie began to iron. There was still no sound from the sitting room. Are you going out today? Lizzie asked, washing Bridget's back as the servant wiped the top half of the nor northeast window. She would have preferred not to have Lizzie watching her. She would, she would have to slow down and do a polished job of it. I might, I might not, Bridget answered in her thick brogue. I'm not feeling well. Well, Lizzie said, be sure to lock the door if you do. Ignoring Bridget's illness, I may go up and Mrs. Borden was out on the sick hall. Oh, who is sick, Miss Lizzie? Bridget asked. I don't know. A boy came to the door with a note. It must be in town. Bridget finished her, her lower window and placed a hand on her back. Lizzie had been ironing for eight or nine minutes. Three or four handkerchiefs were still rolled in a ball. The maid took her stepladder and basin and walked in the kitchen. She replaced the ladder into the closet near the stove and crossed to the sink where she emptied the basin. She turned to the stove and hung a cloth behind the pipe to dry. Lizzie followed her into the kitchen. There's a sale of dress goods at Sargent's today, Lizzie said carefully. Only eight cents a yard. Aye, and I'm going to have one, Bridget said tiredly. Without another word to Lizzie, she headed through the kitchen to the back of Sarah's. She did not see the spasm of anger run along Lizzie's face, only the girl heading back into the dining room. Parentheses. Mr. Adams for the defense asked Bridget at the preliminary hearing about this conversation between herself and Lizzie. Lizzie, yeah. Bridget, I got through with my work and was in the kitchen. Then she told me there was a sale of dress goods at Sargent's, eight cents a yard. I said I would have one. That's all. Adams, did not she make a statement about the sale of dress goods at Frank Sargent's, that is the name, two or three days before that? Parentheses, a big ad for sale on dress goods around Monday. End parentheses. Bridget, no, sir. Adams, did she ever tell about any sale of sergeants before that? Bridget, no, sir. Emma had a good many times told me about the bargains. Adams, Miss Lizzie had not before, so far as you recollect. Bridget, no, sir. I went upstairs directly after that. End of parentheses. Let me have a quick drink. Okay. Andrew's cry, let's see, has come, okay, we don't care about that. Okay. Bridget Sullivan climbed the two sets of stairs to the attic. The temperature rose with each step. As she passed Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room on the second landing, she wondered who the sick friend was Abby was visiting. The only person that ever called on Mrs. Borden was her half-sister, Mrs. Whitehead, who lived two streets over. It was also the only place her employer visited. But if Mrs. Whitehead was sick, would she have sent a messenger boy? Wouldn't her mother or another relative get hold of Mrs. Borden? Besides, Lizzie said it was probably someone in town. 
The bed in Bridget's room looked inviting. Her head was still swimming, but at least her stomach had settled somewhat. She still had at least 30 minutes before she had to stoke the stove fire to heat over the mutton soup for the new meal. She would just finish the front-facing window in the attic storage room that she had started yesterday and wash the window in her room, and she would be finished. The other attic windows were done. After the new meal, she had the rest of the day off. Her mind focused on spending time with her friends downtown. Perhaps they would grab a, pan, a pint. She crossed to the door in her room and opened the door. An old wooden water tank sat on a shelf. She took a rag and dipped it into the clean water. With a sigh, she headed for the attic storage room. Lizzie stood in the dining room. She heard the soft sputtering sounds coming through the open door sitting room next door, only steps away from her. Her mind was awash with panic. Bridget didn't take the hints to leave. She couldn't force the maid to go downtown. It would look suspicious later. Even asking Bridget to go on an innocent errand at that time would come back on her. It had to be her idea to go shopping and run a personal errand, but she had not chosen to climb the stairs to her attic room. Instead, okay, did I read that right? But she had chosen to climb the stairs to her attic room instead. Sorry about that. Double tap that screen. Double tap that screen. Show me some love, everybody. Come on. It's a love. She had mentioned something about fixing her room. Andrew's sputters turned into rattling snore. Lizzie felt nauseous. How could she kill him? She thought of Abby lying dead upstairs, her head sliced to a pulp. Could she do that to her father? It would have to look like the same maniac killed them both. That meant at least a dozen thrashes with the hatchet. The hatchet. She looked down at the weapon in her hand she had found in the cellar, while Bridget was busy with the dining room windows. It was older than the one she had used on Abby. She had thrown the new one away into Crow's yard, not realizing her father would choose this day of old days to come home early. She should have gone out after she killed Abby and not waited for Bridget. But if they found Abby and, and Bridget was the only one home, the girl would hang. Lizzie couldn't do that to her. Taking deep gulfs of air, she laid the hatchet on the dining room table and bent over to untie her low-tie shoes. Slipping her feet from them, she carefully picked up her father's Prince Albert coat lying, ac lying across the arm of the lounge. Andrew's snoring stopped. Lizzie stood frozen to the spot. Seconds passed, and his rattle resumed, catching at times as his fevered mind drifted in and out of sleep. Quickly, she slipped into the coat, buttoning it to her chin, pulling the lapels upwards. The lower half of her face was covered to her nose. It hung on her to the floor, her father's seven-inch height difference providing the perfect cloak. Something felt heavy on her right side, but she ignored it for now. She had to hurry. Lizzie picked up the hatchet. Okay, again, this is going to be very descriptive, so if you have a problem with it, you're not comfortable with it, please do not turn me into the Internet police, just move on and go elsewhere. Lizzie picked up the hatch, and it's weighed so heavy now in her hands. The handle was rough and, the, and head top heavy, causing an ache to rise in her sore wrist. She swallowed over and over. There was no saliva in her mouth. A gag reflex threatened to betray her. Breathing hard, she took two steps to the open sitting room door and peered around the corner. His head was right there. It was so close to her. 
His white hair looked wispy against the embroidered pillow he rested against. Her father's knees were bent, his feet obviously resting on the floor, although she couldn't see them from this angle. His hands rested limply in his lap. The small gold ring she had given him so long ago glinted in the soft light. Bridget lifted the attic storage room window, removed the screen, and began to run the wet rag over the dirty glass. She doubted Mrs. Borden would check her cleaning up here, so she hurried along, giving the window a mere spit polish. The city hall clock struck, one, struck eleven. Below her, life on Second Street drifted by, the smell of chimney smoke from the mills, the sweat of horses, and the occasional whiff of the river rose and fell on the slight breeze. The sound of metal trappings and chopping horse hooves was as was as pervasive as ever. Inside the house, it was quiet. Andrew Board lay in the sitting room. It is. His head turned to the right as he slept fitfully on the black horsehair sofa. His lips made small movements in his sleep, like that of a baby. Lizzie stepped into the room, her breathing short and erratic. She stood just, she stood just inside the dining room door, her body at an angle so that the blood would not reach her. Tears rimmed her eyes. Her head screamed, and with a final breath, she lifted the hatchet over her head and paused. Trembling, she took a deep breath, raised it higher into the air, and let it fall against the left side of her father's face. The thin skin split, exposing his cheekbone. The blade sliced through his nose and cut through his lips. His hands flew up in a convulsive muscle reaction and then fell. The fingers clenched. Her breath coming in panic burst. She lifted it again and brought it down. It cut through his left eyebrow, shattering his eye socket. His eye fell forward onto his cheek, sliced in half. Again, if you're uncomfortable with this, just move on. Do not turn me in the internet, please, okay? I'm just reading a book. In a frenzy of swinging motions, Lizzie hit him again and again. Shorter blows that lessened the amount of blood that was forming. One of the first blows hit his artery, and an arc of arterial spray splashed across the wallpaper near his body. As she raised the hatchet on each subsequent blow, the cast-off blood hit the parlor door to her right and slightly behind her. One drop flew up to the ceiling, and several others splashed along the framework of the kitchen door at the base of the couch. She kept striking, her mind a blur of emotion. Bridget, unaware of what was happening two floors down, picked up the screen and replaced it into the front-facing attic window. Before she slid it into place, she looked down to see Mary Doolin from the next from next door past the side fence that separated the Kelly and Borden houses. The Kelly maid was holding a pail and brush, finally finished with the outside windows. Bridget laughed and called down to her. Are you coming with me later? She yelled, her voice carrying down past the open sitting room windows. Lizzie stopped. The hatchet raised, ready to strike the mutilated head again. The sound of Bridget's voice calling down past the open sitting room windows startled her. She froze, hatchet still raised. Chest heaving, she blinked and looked down at the bloody mess that had been her father's face. As if coming out of a trance, Lizzie stepped back in horror. Her hands were shaking now. She had lost count of the blows swallowing the bile rising in her throat. 
She wiped the bloody hatchet head on her father's coat, which she was wearing. She laid the hatchet on the couch arm and unbuttoned his coat with trembling fingers. She once again felt the weight, pulling the jacket down on the right side, reaching into the pocket. She felt something large and smooth. She pulled out a small white package, hastily wrapped in a newspaper sleeve. Unwrapping it, she found a large rusted lock. Her heart skipped, and her eyes blurred. So like, so like him to keep something broken and useless, she thought. She swallowed back the tears and laid the lock on the white silver tight, dropping the wrapper to the floor. Okay, parentheses. Police found an unexplained rust stain on the sitting room sofa tidy near Andrew's head. End of parentheses. A large bang sounded from the attic. Bridget was still raising and lowering windows. She wasn't taking her usual nap before fixing the dinner meal. Lizzie would have to hurry. The maid could come unexpectedly, come down for something, anything. Her uncle John might show up, changing his mind about the di about dining with them. One of her father's tenants might drop by. Panic shot through her nerves until she thought she would come undone. Lizzie rolled up the Prince Albert and shoved it down slightly behind her father's head wincing as the blood trickled down into his shirt and dressing jacket. If blood is found on the coat, the police will assume it came from his wound, she thought. She stepped to the she she stepped to the deed Okay, she stepped to the deed that he left on the small table by the window and picked it up. Glancing only at the first page, she saw the words Swanson Plant. Anger overtook the terror momentarily, and her resolve came flooding back. Hurrying now, she picked up the hatchet, the lock, and the newspaper wrapper from the floor, and ran to the kitchen. She set the lock on the big table and the hatchet on the floor. Taking the lid from the stove, she peered in. The coal was barely burning. She grabbed a stick of wood from the basket of kindling by the stove and thrust it into the fire door, poking it into the only red glow of heat she could find. Quickly, she rolled the deed into a tight tube and placed it on the metal grate closest to the fire. She crumpled the newspaper wrapper and dropped it down into the hot coals. Grabbing the hatchet, Lizzie ran in stocking feet down the cellar steps. She turned on the faucets in the washroom and ran the cold water over the blade and handle. She had wiped most of the blood from the blade with her father's coat. The rest came off with a little scrubbing. The hatchet handle, however, was harder. It had small fissures running along the, the weathered grain. The blood had not been nearly as bad as with Abby's wounds, partly due to her father's long coat sleeves covering her hands to the fingertips. Lizzie let the hatchet lay in the sink beneath the running water as she washed the small blood droplets from the back of her fingers. She checked her nails and pushed back her sleeves to make sure her wrists were clean. Turning off the water, she stared at the hatchet. She couldn't throw this one away. Alfred Johnson was spotted as missing, and it would lead back to her. A murderer isn't going to take the time to look around the house for a weapon. He would bring his own. So what to do with it? She couldn't get all the blood out of the cracks in the handle. Bridget made one last swipe at her bedroom window. She looked down at the Borden's backyard. Several pairs had fallen, which meant Mr. Borden would be bringing more into her kitchen in the morning. She sighed. 
How many pairs does one family need? She glanced at the barn door and froze. It was standing ajar. She must have forgotten to look after the washing windows. If Mr. Borden saw it, he would not be happy with her. Bridget opened her door and crept quietly down the stairs, grateful the last flight to the kitchen was carpeted. As she reached the, the, the entryway floor, she paused and listened. Nothing. Quickly, she hurried out the screen door, making sure to close it gently, and ran to the barn. She quickly peeked inside, saw no one, and shut the door, pinning the hasp with a sigh of relief. With another sigh of relief, she hurried back to the screen door. She entered, and just as she was about to head back up the stairs, she heard a noise coming from the cellar. She paused, and then gave it no more thought as she tiptoed up the back stairs to her room. Bridget walked around the bed to the window and looked down, just to make sure. The barn door was locked. She sat down on the edge of her bed with a grateful sigh. Only dinner to prepare, and the rest of the day was hers. At least the mutton broth was almost gone. She would be grateful for a nice joint of beef from the farm, a chicken, anything but more lamb. She swung her legs onto the bed, spread and lay down, her head grateful for a moment of stillness. No sound floated up the stairs from below. Only the rhythm of the street sounds ran through her tired head. The cellar smelled of earthen brick. Outside, the sound of pounding stood stone was barely muffled. Lizzie hardly noticed. She'd come up with a plan. The old starch box where she had found the, the, the hatchet she had just used was filled with dusty tools. If she covered the hatchet in the dust, it would look like no one had used it for a while. She took it out to the back room where, where the coal was kept. Ashes from the stove and furnace were everywhere. She rolled the hatchet in the ash and looked at it. Most of the ashes fell away as she moved it and as she moved it through the air. Carrying it back to the washroom, she ran over she ran water over it, returned to the coal room, and rolled it again, being careful to only touch the small piece of wood at the top of the blade, and the bottom of the handle with the, with a finger from each hand. The coarse white ash stuck to the blade of wood. She studied it and realized it wasn't enough. Someone might still look closely at it and see the blood on the handle. It would not need to be broken. No one would suspect broken hatchet as being a murder weapon. But it had to look like a break, not cut or sawn. Lizzie had often watched as her father made things from wood. As a child, she had followed him about like a shadow. His carpenter's trade fascinated her. Building beautiful things from plain wood was marvelous to watch. One of the tricks she had learned from him was how to break poles quickly. He would lay a chip of wood on a chopping block or a table, lean the pole against it and, and an incline and strike it. It always split cleanly and fast. She laid a wedge of wood under the chopping block near the furnace and placed the hatchet at an incline, its head resting on the wedge. Lizzie stepped into the wood cellar, back of the furnace, and reached into the old starch box where the hatchets were kept. She removed a large one that was standing, head down, one with a five-inch blade and claw on one end. It felt huge compared to the smaller one she had used. Walking back to the chopping block, she looked down at the small shingling hatchet and considered. I can use the sharp blade edge, she thought. It will look cut. 
She turned the hatchet over to the square. Flat block of the blade where the claw turned down. She would hit the little hatchet near where the handle was thinnest, about four inches down from the blade. Parentheses. The hatchet breaking experiment. Okay. Is on another page of the book. Okay. Here we go. Fearing the blade would flip up and cut her when she struck it. She placed her hands as far along the claw head handle as possible and stood back. Taking a deep breath, she raised it high above her head and swung it down hard on the shingling hatchet handle. A, large, a, a loud crack sounded, and the head flew into the air, missing her by mere inches. The small chip of wood that had elevated the hatchet fell onto the floor. Lizzie picked up the head with two fingers and looked at it. It looked good. It looked like a break, not cut or sawn. She carefully picked up the handle, keeping her fingers at the top and bottom, and carried into the wood cellar to the starch box she had left sitting on the stool. Stool? Yeah, the floor. During the same, or doing the same with the hatchet head, she placed them inside. She was pleased. While the ashes covering her hatchet looked somewhat different from the thin layer of dust covering the tops of the other tools, it might just pass. She quickly washed the claw head hatchet to remove some ashes that had been transferred to it, and for extra measure, swiped it down with a cloth to remove any fingerprints. Holding it with her skirt, she put it in the starch box. As she took a hasty look at the washroom to make sure all was in order, her eyes fell on the small wedge of wood. I picked up a chip from the floor, quote, Lizzie said in her inquest testimony. Always one for small details. She tossed the fragment into the wood room and headed for the cellar stairs to the kitchen. Her heart racing, Lizzie rushed at the stove and lifted the lid. The roll of papers was smoking and smoldering, just about to catch. Hurry up, she thought desperately. She tiptoed quietly or quickly to the dining room, her breath catching as she neared where her father lay. Without looking at him, she crossed through the sitting room and into the front entryway, where she checked her reflection in the mirror of the hallway, the whole tree. She pushed aside the small curls flecking her forehead. She could see no blood. Her dress had been completely covered by the coat, but she carefully looked it over anyway. There was coal ash flecking on the front of the skirt and the hem. Bridget felt the, sweet, the sweat trickle down her neck. The attic was so closed and stuffy. It was hard to sleep in the heat of the forenoon. Her mind went over her chores. The windows were done now for another week or two, depending on Abby's wishes. The attic wouldn't need it for another month. Tomorrow was just some light sweeping, and Saturday was some baking. The worst of the week was over, and she had tonight and half a Sunday off. She sighed with relief. Just as she felt herself becoming hazy, a shout from the back stairs jarred her awake. Maggie! Maggie! It was Miss Lizzie hollering at the top of her lungs. Miss Lizzie really hollered. Something terrible must have happened. Heart pounding, Bridget ran to the top of the attic stairs and called down. What's wrong? Come real quick, Lizzie screamed. Father's dead. Someone's coming and killed him. Okay, we're going to stop there. Chapter 15. Now, just a quick word with this for you guys that are following this. We will not revisit this book until after January 1st. So starting this Sunday when we come when I come back in here to read for the regular day on Sunday, we're going, I'm going to be reading from uh, from some uh, dark Christmas stories.
Christmas and winter and holiday stories. So uh, just be aware of that. And that will take our reading up until probably the first or second week, you know, Sunday in January. Okay, guys, I want to thank you guys for coming. I know it's Thanksgiving Eve for a lot of you. And I hope you uh, were just as interested in this book as I, I am because there's a lot of detail in here that I didn't even know about for Lizzie Borton. So, you know, it is what it is. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. Everybody on TikTok, thank you for coming. Quick announcements. Tomorrow I will not obviously be here live because I will be having Thanksgiving with my family. And so I want to let you know that we are running a best of uh, program. And you can find that at uh, youtube.com forward slash California Haunts Radio. Oh, I'm sorry. YouTube.com. I'm tired. YouTube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. And uh, I'll go ahead and tease it for you tomorrow as well. But it's going to be Ron, uh, my guest is Ron Felber, and we're going to be talking about the Mojave incident, which is one of the scariest UFO abduction incidents I have ever read. So if you guys are into that, come on over tomorrow, 6.30 p.m., and listen to Ron Felber talk about the Mojave incident. Okay, that being said, Friday we will, I will be back live. My guess is... It's Michelle LeBaron, who was an empath, and she will be talking about her ex experiences investigating the paranormal. So that will be Friday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. We're back live. All right, guys, with that in mind, TikTok, good night. Have a great rest of your holiday, and I will see you guys live on Friday. Okay, now we're back over here. Again, I did tease it. I'm just looking. Oh, I got a new, I got a new follower. Anyway, uh, I did tease it. Uh, I did the teaser. So remember, tomorrow will not be a live show, but it will be a best of with uh, with, with Ron Felber and uh, the Mojave Incident. And then Friday, we will be live. And don't miss that show, 6.30 p.m. Pacific with Michelle LeBaron. Okay? All right, guys. I will see you and have a great Thanksgiving. And uh, bye.